Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our next reading is from the book of John, chapter 21, verses 1 to 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fashion your own belt to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, those disciples walking along that Emmaus road had their hearts burning within them when you spoke. And so we pray that you would burn in our hearts this morning, that we would hear your word, that we would know more who you are so that we can make you better known in this world. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they'd be acceptable in your sight. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is the, the third Sunday of Easter, right? Again, we get to delight in this season long after the decorations have come down from the grocery store, uh, possibly after all the chocolate eggs have been eaten, when the, the long weekend is, a, uh, is well in the past, we, we get to keep leaning into the mystery and the hope of Easter. Now we get to join the first disciples in 50 days that mirror those 50 days we're told Jesus spent with them, teaching them, reorienting them after his resurrection. We get to grab hold of the wonder and the joy and the, the challenge of figuring out what it means to say that we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Now last week I said that in my own kind of devotional and prayer life, I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to this question, what if it's true? Right, as a way of thinking through what it means to live through the hope of Easter. I want to think about that as, as kind of seriously as I can. What does it mean if it's true in this everyday life? Not in abstract, but in everyday life. If it's true that Jesus is raised from the dead. Which is God's way of saying that his will and way, the will and way of Jesus, is the will and way at the heart and center of all things. What if it's true? And I'm going to be inviting uh, you to come back into this question with me each uh, time I preached throughout this season. And so, and so last week we heard the resurrection story from John's gospel, in which uh, Jesus shows up to uh, Thomas's doubt, you know, Jesus doing everything he needs to do to get Thomas in on this thing and uh, to overcome his very reasonable objections. <laughs> and you may recall, if you're here, that the thing that I recognized in that whole passage is that if it's true, we have peace and we have purpose. Right? Jesus' first resurrection word to his disciples, even though they don't deserve it, is peace be with you. After they'd abandoned him, after they denied even knowing him, after they'd given up all hope that anything he'd said was true, after they were locked away and terrified to be even associated with them, he comes to them and he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's his first word. Not just to them there, but to us here and now and always, peace be with you. We are objects of Christ's peace, a peace that's beyond all understanding or circumstance, peace that's freely given, peace that only need be received. 
But this isn't just passive uh, reception. It's not doing nothing. It's not idleness. We have peace and we have purpose. You know, in case we didn't get it the first time, Jesus says it again, peace be with you. And actually, he'll say it again when he shows up to Thomas. Peace be with you. He really means this. But the second time he says it on that first Easter evening, uh, he adds something to it. He says, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And he breathes the Holy Spirit, uh, the very breath of God on him, which is kind of beautiful and kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, uh, it reminds us that, that followers of Jesus are a sent people. Sent into the world in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to bear the Spirit's fruit. Remember Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and generosity and faithfulness and self-control. We're, we're sent into the world to bear these fruits wherever we are, whatever we're doing, because we are sent as Jesus is sent. We are conscripted into his holy revolution. We are like those first disciples and sent out into the world to become the answer to the question, what if it's true? That's the resurrection story as far as John is concerned, which is why I love today's reading so much. Uh, you know, I love the 21st chapter of John because it shouldn't even be there. You know, the things wrap up so nicely at the end of chapter 20. John says he's written, everything is written so that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that in believing you might have life in Jesus' name. And that's the benediction, right? That's John saying, go. Go figure out what it means to have life in Jesus' name and nothing less. You've been sent as he was sent. Get on with it. And then we get chapter 21, <laughs> which is absolute grace. Right? Like, what a gift to know that even Peter and his friends, the ones who saw the resurrection hope and wonder with their very own eyes, had no idea what they were doing or the implications of this thing. You know, what a gift to know that that's not going to stop Jesus coming after them again. What a gift to know that Jesus will have them, will come to them, even in spite of themselves. You know, that's, that's the first thing I see in this story as I, as I think about it through the question, what if it's true? is that we're not just called by Jesus, but we are claimed by him. We're not just invited, we are conscripted. You know, in his last great teaching before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. It was marvelous, right? right? We're not in on this thing because we made a decision for Jesus. We're in on it because Jesus made a decision for us. Jesus is God's decision for the world. And his resurrection is the promise that not even death will stop God getting the world God wants. And he seems to think that we are cut out to get in on this thing. We are chosen. We are claimed by Jesus. But not over and against the world. We are chosen for the world. We are sent as Jesus is sent. I mean, let's get into the story here. Peter and the other disciples have met the risen Jesus. They've been commissioned by him. They've received the power, presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we could reasonably expect, uh, given everything that's happened, that the disciples would have gotten down to the business of working out this new resurrection reality in the world. But that's it's not what happens at all. Instead of figuring out what it means to be the first fruits of God's new creation, Peter's instinct is to get back to what he, what he knows, what's familiar. Right, to live in the world as though nothing much has changed. And his friends seem to think that's a pretty reasonable thing to do. 
they're going to go fishing, right? Which is what they know. Most of these guys were fishermen uh, before Jesus called them. All of them have lived around fishermen their whole lives. This is familiar territory. In the boat, Peter knows what he's doing. The ropes and the nets are like an extension of himself. No matter how wild the water gets, he knows how to get the boat back to shore. He knows how to maintain control. He's been fishing so long, all of this is second nature. And the reason I think this is so much grace is that John is letting us know, in a roundabout way, that when our instinct is to turn from the disruption of Easter, you know, to hear the stories and sing the songs, but then to carry on living as though not much is different, to get back to what we know, we're not alone. Now, when we choose to live in the world as though nothing much has changed, we're not alone. When we choose what's familiar, when we default to the way things are instead of the way that they will be, when we cling to the world we know instead of getting in on the new thing that God is doing, we are not alone. That's Peter's instinct too. Disciple number one doesn't do any better than we do, which I think is a sort of relief. But here's the truly good news. Jesus is having none of it. Jesus is having none of it because he's not just invited us into the kingdom. He has claimed us for it. We didn't choose him. He chose us just as we are. He loves us just as we are. He chose us and loves us just as we are and way too much to leave us that way. Jesus is not content to leave things the way they are either in us or in the world. And there's some, some beautiful imagery, I think, in this story that helps us get to the heart of what this means. Yeah, as Peter and the boys get in the boat, it's the end of a day, right? They're going to go fishing through the night because that's how it's done. That's the pattern they know. It's the rhythm they're familiar with. It's the way things are. And of course, it's a fruitless exercise, right? They work from dusk, or dusk till dawn and they catch nothing. But as a new day breaks, while the sun's just coming up over the horizon, Jesus tracks them down. And he shakes his head at their foolishness. He tells them to cast the nets on the other side of the boat as if that's the problem. And the nets fill to bursting. You can hear the rope stretching. Easter means that this new day has dawned. Jesus shows up at the breaking in of a new day. And transforms fruitlessness into abundance. Empty nets into bursting ones. And it's symbolic of the way things really are. Maybe not the way they seem, but the way they really are. Because Jesus is not satisfied to have us laboring through a long and fruitless night, trying to cling to the things that we know. We are made for a new day. He's claimed us for a new day. He snatched us out of fruitlessness and sent us out in abundance. You know, when we want to get back to what we know, he'll show up again and again and again. He'll say, no, 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 no. I've made you and claimed you for something else. You're not made for life as you know it. You're not made for the world as it is. You're made for life in my name. In the world as I will have it. You're made for resurrection life. So I wonder what, what, what are you clinging to because it's familiar, because it's the way things are. What are the things that keep you in fruitless labor, struggling in the dark and coming up empty, even if it feels like you know what you're doing? And where do you need to let Jesus call you out of a long night of the way things are into the new day of the way that they will be? And maybe you know the answer to that right away. 
And if so, I want to just insist that Jesus has claimed you for something else. That Jesus is coming after you with a love that not even death can stop. Because you are his and he made you for nothing less than life in his name. Death conquering life. Know that. Take a page out of Peter's book and act the fool for Jesus. Dive in, swim, run towards him. Isn't that a marvelous image? You can just imagine Jesus coming sputtering out of the water breathless, desperate to be near his Lord. It's good stuff. Or maybe kind of like Peter at the beginning of the story, it's not at all clear where you need a new day to break in. And maybe it's not clear uh, where you need Jesus to show up and call you again, to remind you what you're made for. But, you know, since on this side of things we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, there's, there are spaces in our lives we're clinging to something that we're not made for. So ask him, and he'll show you. He is faithful, and he will call you again. You know, this beach scene just, just shows us that the Christian life isn't based, first of all, on our decision for Jesus. It's rooted in Jesus' decision for us, right? It's not, first of all, about our determination. It's about his determination. And it's glorious that he doesn't come back to those disciples and get, lay the smack down on them, even if that's what they deserve. No, he makes them breakfast. He feeds them. <laughs> and he sends them out again, sent as he was sent, for the sake of this God-beloved world. We are sent to bear the Spirit's fruit, wherever we are, whatever we do, sent in his name. And that, that's, that's key, in his name, right? It's the second thing that I'm seeing in this story this time around. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. That's a fruitless, exhausting nighttime labor. <laughs> we don't have to make a name for ourselves because we have been gathered in to the name that is above every name. We are claimed for a way more beautiful than making a name for ourselves. I heard someone say recently that the, the path of Christian maturity is the way of, uh, is a movement from ego to agape, from self-ego to self-giving love, agape. Now, we come out of the womb operating entirely out of our egos, right? Infants are entirely ego-driven. I mean, of course, they're beautiful, but they're also the most self-centered creatures on the planet, right? I want what I want. I, I need what I need. I want it when I want it. And if I don't get it, I'm going to make a lot of noise about it, and I don't care where we are or what time it is or if you just fell asleep. And of course, that's, that's important. Babies are doing everything they can to stay alive to survive, so they are completely ego-driven. And unfortunately, a lot of folks never kind of get over that. <laughs> you know, the world around us encourages us to live out of our ego. The world encourages us to live in suspended infancy, spiritually and emotionally speaking. You know, we sometimes dress it up as maturity, but it's not. We've built an entire economic system designed specifically to satisfy our egos. We want what we want when we want it. We want all of our needs met with same-day delivery. We were, made, we were made to believe that the whole point of this life is to get what we want, to be in control, to, to make a name for ourselves. And the evidence suggests that we are collectively committed to the notion that there isn't anything else possible, even if it destroys us, which it unquestionably is doing, right? I mean, it's well documented that North Americans are the richest, most self-satisfied people the world has ever known, and we are also the most anxious, depressed, and dissatisfied people the world has ever known. Because we're not made to live for our egos. 
And I think at the beginning of this story, we see Peter doing what he wants to do. We see Peter operating out of his certainty, his own capacity, his control, his own desire. And although we can be fairly certain that he did everything right, the man knows how to fish. In the end, it's fruitless. By the end of the night, the nets are still empty. And this is the danger of operating out of our egos. Right at the end of our day, at the day, our nets will be empty. Naked we come from the womb, and naked we shall return. And mercifully, we're not made for ego. We're made for agape. We're made for we're not made for a fruitless night. We are made for the inbreaking and dawn of a new day. And Jesus chases his disciples down, and after breakfast, he, he and Peter have this conversation. Where Jesus asked Peter three times uh, if he loves him, and if so, feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Care for the ones that Jesus cares for, which is to say everyone. <laughs> Do it with your whole self. You know, two out of the three times the Greek word that's translated as love is agape. And agape is the kind of love we read about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Go and, go and read it today. Philippians 2, 5 to 11, where we hear that Jesus didn't grasp at the power that was rightfully his, but poured himself out for the sake of this God-beloved world. And that's why his name is the name that's above every name. That's why he's worthy to sit on the throne of the universe, why every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, Peter is not meant for ego. He's meant for agape. He's not meant to do whatever he wants. He's meant to get after what Jesus wants, which in the end is actually what Peter's heart most wants, even if it costs costs him everything. It's the one thing that's worth everything. St. Augustine famously said in prayer, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And we're not made to live for our egos. That's a recipe for restlessness. Ego is a way of fear and scarcity. It keeps us always on edge, always self-protecting. But agape is the way of hope and abundance. We are made for agape, for that self-giving love that's at the heart and center of all things, a love that is fiercer than death. We are made to live more and more, to live and move and have our being, and to bear witness wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whether it's hard or it's easy with people we like or we don't like, uh, in all of this God-beloved world, human and otherwise. We're meant to live in agape. So I want to invite you this week to take this into prayer. Ask Jesus to show you where you're living out of ego instead of agape. I promise to do the same. And then trust him to come to you, to give you what you need, and to send you again. Sent out for love, in love. Sent as he was sent. May it be so. Amen. Amen.